The Third Men Podcast is a fan-made, not-for-profit, just-for-fun celebration of Jack White and is in no way directly affiliated with Third Man Records or the man himself. For the definitive history of Jack White and his music, please consult your local Jack White. And for everyone else looking for a home, you found one here, in a place so seedy. Enjoy! show you around so you can be all prepared for your very first recording session. Yes! Oh, it's so wonderful here. And I'm sorry, what is your... Oh, <laughs> sorry, that's just a fun voice I put on to uh, to make myself, you know, feel at home. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, it's just it's just something I would do for myself. Yeah. Good, yeah, I want you to feel very comfortable here. Yeah. Um, now, what, uh, I'm sorry, what is your name and act again and genre of music? My name is Sven Spencer. Sven Svensson, yeah. And my act is, uh, well, it's, you know, Shakespearean in, uh, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. thought. Shakespearean in thought, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, but it's it's really uh, an avant-garde version of the Nutcracker Suite if it were mixed with Skrillex and a dog whistle so that only Gen Z can hear it. I see, I see. And that does explain the baby that you've shown up with here. Am I to understand that uh, that you are a two-person act, a man and a baby? Yes, uh, this baby is here, and he's ready to uh, bust a move. Bust, oh, I see, bust a move, yeah. Uh, bust a rhyme, and... I see under tone here you just wrote Billy Crystal. I'm sorry, what is that? Uh, that is to? the genre of music that we like to, uh, you know, label this under. Genre is fluid, and this is mine, Billy Crystal. I'm just going to go ahead and give you this microphone here, and whenever you're ready, I'm just going to go ahead and hit the record button. So, um, Fantastic. I don't, I'm not sure you actually told me the name of your act. Oh, Sven Svensson and Son? Well, the Son and Svensson stands for Son, yeah. Sven Svensson? Uh, no, it's just pronounced Svensson, but you know, you can. The sun really... is in the Svensson, I see, yeah. Yeah, the baby is starting to slowly wrap the microphone cord around his neck. Is so... that part of the act? Mm, 
I think he thinks it is. It's uh, definitely avant-garde. This does explain the Billy Crystal stuff. Uh, yeah. Okay, now I'm gonna go ahead and uh, I'm gonna go ahead and hit record. And whenever Great. you're ready, go ahead. Great. We're done. Thank you, Sven. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that was our best yet. Good job, Jack. <laughs> it was, oh man. There was ups, there was downs, there was improv, there was outprov. Welcome. Uh, <laughs> welcome to the Third Men Podcast, all you plague goers out there. I am your co host, the so far healthy Paul Kaminsky. I am your other co host. Don't have that disease, but otherwise unhealthy. James Kaminsky, how are how are you all doing out there? Yeah, I've got a baby here. If you could have an, oh, I think he's pooping. Oh, oh, the baby's pooping. Back to eating microphone cords. Okay. <laughs> yeah, this is our uh, Jack White History podcast, the Third Men podcast, wherein we go over all sorts of different Jack White related projects and pick a different topic every week. And this week, James, we have another extended interview we do these from time to time where someone from in or around the third man records world will talk to us for an extended period of time and this week we have a very exciting guest mr joe ciccarelli now joe ciccarelli is a noted producer and engineer tons of technical credits and joe engineered both the white stripes final studio release icky thump as well as the Tours second studio album, Consolers of the Lonely, as well as mm-hmm. a few other Jack White projects, as we'll come to find out. Two of our favorite Jack White projects of all time. Yeah. This man has had his uh, his hand dipped right in. Joe, and, Joe's uh, hand is dipped in there. It's dipped in there, like the dip from Roger Rabbit. Mm-hmm. And, uh, well, that's not true. That dip <laughs> did bad things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that dip disintegrated cartoon characters, and this kind of dip leads to talking to two cartoonish people eventually in your life. <laughs> yeah, why? Why did he talk to us? Um, it was so nice of him to join to join us, and uh, the interview was super great. He's super friendly. Talked with us for a super long time. We really, really learned a lot. He had so many great stories, and you know, he says that he doesn't like to live in the past, but I feel like. This may have been the first time he talked about the past in a long time, because I think we just started digging up yeah. some new memories there, or at least memories he, he wasn't telling a lot of people. So that was great. Yeah, lots of great Jack White stories in here. Great insight into the recording process of both Icky Thump and Consolers of the Lonely, as well as the Hank Williams Project. And he did mention that he worked with Jack and Carla Azar, and then we didn't go into it at all. So I actually don't know what he was referring to there, but we do know that he was around when Jack was building the Third Man Studio and all this stuff. So Joe has been involved in the Jack White world for quite some time. I just want to read, since we didn't get to it in the interview, I just want to read a list of his studio credits, whether it be as an engineer or producer or whatever. There's a lot of different stuff that he's been involved in, but I'm just going to go down the list here. Frank Zappa, Etta James, Journey, Poco, George Thorogood, Oingo Boingo, Pat Benatar, Joan Baez, The Bangles, Beck, Del Shannon, the would-be Wilbury, Tori Amos, I think he might have been in her first band? 
TBD. Don't know anything about that. Uh, <laughs> we should have asked him if he knew Neil Gaiman, actually, because I think there was something in there involving Neil Gaiman. You two, Hole, Counting Crows, Laura Love, who my wife loves. That's uh, She's got an album, Shum Tiki, which my wife wanted to send in a special thank you to Joe for working on. Ricky Martin, Enrique Iglesias, Elton John, Rufus Wainwright, Bon Jovi, Hanson, The Shins, Mika, My Morning Jacket, Brandy Carlisle, Minus the Bear, The Strokes, Jason Mraz, Alanis Morissette, Dwight Yoakam, Plain White Tees, Dropkick Murphys, Hello Goodbye, Spoon, Morrissey, Jeff the Brotherhood, Flogging Molly, and Broken Social Scene. And that's only the names I recognized on that list. Now that you've named every band in history, Paul, which ones did Joe work on? Yeah, that's that's just all of them there. Now, so oh, oh, okay, cool. This guy's got a big long list here, and and we talked to him, got some really cool insight. So we really hope you enjoyed this interview. We really enjoyed conducting it and working on it. And Joe was so kind to join us, even under the early stages of quarantine. <laughs> he, uh, I believe, he had to cancel a, a trip that weekend or so, and and still made time to record with us. So we're really thankful to Joe. So thank you, Joe. We hope you all enjoy. But James, before we get to that interview is there something we should stop doing paul no i mean i feel like there is we definitely missed a huge fact last week or last time well i think we might have to smell that though i don't know if that's a i don't know if that's a boo-boo so much as a smell smell okay is there a breaking down that we should start smelling (laughs) yeah it's i think i smell a fact what is the most astounding fact the most astounding fact the most astounding fact is the knowledge. Uh, I think I smell a fact is when we learn something that we didn't normally know and uh, didn't want to make a whole new episode about it. And so we, uh, we just take a fact and we tell y'all about a previous topic that we had, perhaps. Yeah, so James, this was on one of your episodes and we both made a big boo-boo in not understanding or knowing this and we were told by literally every one of our listeners on the internet uh that we okay. that we missed this do you want to take it james yeah okay <laughs> look okay so here's the thing keith urban we had a rag and bone last episode in which keith urban hosted a number one party at third man records and he went on to reminisce about seeing Pearl Jam live there. And he mentioned that his wife is good friends with Jack White, which we were like, the Urbans and Jack White? That's weird. You know, we didn't look any further into it. We just said that's weird and kind of left it as so. Now, as it turns out, Keith Urban's wife is star of stage and screen, Carl Urban. No, uh, Nicole Kidman. And Nicole Kidman, as you know, is good friends with Jack White, having met him on the set of Cold Mountain, I believe, right, Paul? Yeah, so when you told me that Keith Urban was hanging out in Third Man Records, I thought that was mighty strange, but of course I didn't realize that he was married to Nicole Kidman, Jack's co-star from Cold Mountain, yes. Cold in Mountain. our defense, who should know that? <laughs> I Why should I we know, know that? But apparently people I mean, did. Like, we're, we're not knowledgeable about anything. I think it's safe to say. <laughs> we don't profess to be. Yeah. So, I mean, I in our defense, it's a weird fact that I guess we should have looked into, but I don't think we should be blamed for not knowing outright. This is my defensive posture. Uh, I need y'all to get all the way off my back about this one. <laughs> 
I'm just kidding. Thank you all for sending it in and uh, and letting us know. We did get a lot of responses. Yeah, it was quite uh, a, a few. lot of people. I think yeah. it might have been the most the most times people said, "Hey, you guys are idiots." Um, <laughs> it's so many words. I mean, it was nice. I mean, Luke Sinclair, Luke me over closely, probably was the meanest when he said, "Hey guys, you should probably know." <laughs> And everyone else was, you know, super mean going, hey, did you know this thing? Or here's a fact you might not have known. Nicole Kidman is Keith Urban's wife. There's a reason they know each other. And uh, I think it's a stop breaking facts. James, I'm embarrassed that we didn't catch yeah. that fact, but I'm so happy all of our listeners told us about it. So thank you very much. And this has been... Oh. Well, I reflect on that fact. record y'all weren't mean i was being sarcastic you all are very nice thank you for letting us know yeah hey why don't we get into this interview with joe ciccarelli yes please it's so great guys i'm super excited to present this to you guys and paul is is the one editing it and i can't wait to hear what he comes out with it's great we would like to welcome to the podcast, Joe Ciccarelli, producer, engineer, guru of all things recorded sound. How are you, Joe? Thanks for joining us. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, I'm not sure what to say about the guru title, but that's okay. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. Your name has been floating around our podcast for a long time because you've done so much work with Third Man, or at least so much like really great work with Third Man that we talk about so often, like Icky Thump and and Consolers of the Lonely. So your name has come up quite a bit, and we've been dying to talk to you. Oh, uh, no, no, I'm, I'm happy to do it. Those were great records, fun times, great people, and uh, always uh, happy to talk about it. I'm not one that dwells on the past too much. I'm definitely one that kind of looks forward. That's why I'm always floating around, as you put it. <laughs> I'm always looking, looking for what's next, what's new, how can I push things, how can I do something differently. You know, so I, I try not to uh, dwell too much on what's happened in the past. I mean, it's fun. It's, uh, I respect it. I learn from it. But um, I'm always kind of just pushing myself. Yeah. Well, I mean, with that said, let's dwell on the past, shall we? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and future. Let's uh, we'll, we'll go. All yeah, around. let's do that. Let's do both of them. We got to keep you floating, Joe. We got to keep you floating. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so, growing up in Boston. What were yeah. what, what were you listening to? Give us your background. What yeah, you, you know, I grew uh, in Boston, went to school in Boston, played in a bunch of little local bands, none of which amounted to anything. I played bass and uh, everything from sort of psychedelic garage rock bands to uh, <laughs> R&B cover bands playing weddings, you know. Yeah. So um, a, a little of everything. And, and I was fortunate in that, that I had a second cousin that actually owned a recording studio in Boston. Boston. So, oh, nice. you know, when I had school break or on a weekend, I would go there and, and hang out and, and just sort of learn a little bit about recording because I was always fascinated and like everybody in the times had a TX4 track and, you know, yeah. played around with that with my band and my friends' bands and eventually uh, left Boston because at the time it was just a, a sort of secondary music market and I uh, was always fascinated with the music coming 
traveling from LA and moved out here and uh, haven't really looked back. I, although I was actually back in Boston just a couple of months ago recording Yo-Yo Ma, which was oh, wow. an absolute oh, wow. pleasure. It was just a really, really uh, transformative uh, experience. He's quite a person, quite a musician. Pretty amazing. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Um, the TX4 track, I think Jack had one of those too when he was growing up. I think Jack did. Everybody had a yeah. 3340. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> that was the, the machine of the late 70s. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. When you were using that machine, were there any like key influences that you were trying to reach for the sound of? Give me like your top five when you were, you know, in that formative sort of Man, you know, I I think I was just trying to figure out what the heck I was doing. I mean, (laughs) I I don't, I mean, really, I I don't think I had any clue whatsoever. And in fact, to be really, really honest, um, you know, what experience I had in Boston and when I, moved out to LA, it was really apparent to me that it was a whole different league. The one thing that was amazing to me is the studio musicians out here at the time, you know, I was working on albums as an assistant engineer for Ed James and Alan Toussaint and the Bee Gees and so many people that just the studio players alone were at a, a league that I had just never experienced. And, you know, I realized right away that a lot of the greatness of those records, like any record really, it's not the engineer or the producer, it's the player. The really great sounds are in the hands of a great musician. became instantly really, really obvious to me and you know, in the first sessions that I had done out here. Hmm. Was there any wrecking crew still active at that time? No, no, that that was kind of like the generation or two before me. So right. um I, I didn't although I I have worked with Jim Keltner, who I guess was nice. kind of maybe secondary part of that crew, second wave of that crew. And he's, you know, just such a unique player, such an amazing feel, such a nice human being. I mean, you know, that's the other thing is like all the guys out here, they really were so supportive of me uh, as an assistant. You know, at at times my musical background was very limited, just self-taught for the most part. And they were really good about kind of coaching me through things. And it was really, really something. But Keltner and all the drummers out here are just amazing, and and certainly in Nashville. And now there's just, because people have been 
brought up with drum machines and uh, you know DAWs that uh, their sense of beats is so much more adventurous their sense of time and dynamics so much better yeah you know I mean and I think that's just you know we're talking about the just kind of moving forward I think that's part of the great thing that's happened over the last 20 years is that everybody has the same technology now everybody speaks the same language they have the same understanding of things and I think everybody starts from a higher place you know they're not the lost guy with the four track that I was (laughs) (laughs) yeah well I have two real quick follow up Keltner questions one do the sunglasses ever come off Wow. Uh, that's a good question. I'm not sure. Because <laughs> I have a theory he may just be a drumming robot. Uh, not so at all. <laughs> no, far from it. My second question is, he was once bitten by a beetle. Have you ever been bitten by a member of a legendary rock and roll band? <laughs> no. Although I think there are a couple that like would have liked to have bit me after the, the torture I put them through, getting great takes or, or great vocals, probably. Uh. <laughs> I know you mentioned that uh, players are the ones who you know really shine, but I think uh, production and engineering definitely is what helps bring that to another level. And a producer such as yourself has done that in the past. Are there any producers? that you looked up to or looked to for honing your craft? I know you said you were an assistant engineer for a while, and was there anybody who was mentoring you or helping you along in that process? Uh, yeah, the, uh, you know, there's, there's been certainly a lot of producers over the time that I've looked up to and respected, Rhett Davies and Martin Hannett and so many people making just different sounding records that stood out. You know, the one experience that I had that was really transformative for me because I kind of thought the producer was the guy that manipulated everything and was hands-on with every part of the recording process and a mastermind, if you will. And I I really thought that he had to have an opinion in every corner. (laughs) And I worked with Jerry Wexler, who has done Aretha Franklin to John Coltrane to the Rascals, to so many legendary records. And, you know, Jerry was the old school producer who really had the big picture vision in mind. Right. Really understood where he was going and what the artist needed and where he had to help them get to. And I worked on a few sessions with him and what was interesting to me is that he didn't really say anything until <laughs> things were going awry. You know, he kind of kept very subtly just pushing things along and was a cheerleader, if you will. But, you know, once the ship started turning in the wrong direction, then he was a bit more vocal about things. Yeah. But still, even not pushy and not very specific with things. He would kind of give general guidance. And the great thing I've learned about that is that it lets people interpret things in their own way and then come up with something that is honest and unique to them. And also they have now ownership of it because it really is 
their interpretation, as opposed to you saying, hey, can you play this chord here with this kind of inversion? Right, right. You know, and and somebody plays it, it does the job, everything's fine. But if you kind of give somebody a general idea or open a door to where they need to go, they do it their own way, and usually you come up with better things. And so I've, I've learned now that you you have to be that guide. You have to be the guy that shows the pathway and not necessarily, you know, shows them every stone along the path, you know, because they'll they'll kind of get past the stone in their own way and come up with something very special. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was definitely like a real learning experience for me because I really, I think the records I had made up to that point were I was very, very, very specific about every detail and held on to every detail. And I think in the end, I made perhaps a record that was maybe most satisfying to me and not to everybody else. <laughs> you know? yeah. um, and, and that's not, in my opinion, that's not like the best way to produce a record. I think it's a, it's a team effort and um, you, you gotta be there to, to guide things. So, um, yeah. and you know, like if, if you want to bring this around to white stripes and racking tours, I mean, I think, you know, that's certainly one of Jack's, gifts is he understands performance and spontaneity and energy and passion and he wants that from everybody and he drums it up and uh, inspires people. You know, in the time that I was working with him, he wasn't that technical. He had maybe come off the first Tours record and Get Behind Me Satan was the previous White Stripes album. And, you know, he had a general sense of what he liked, but he wasn't very specific about, you know, use this compressor or that. He really didn't understand that at the time. Um, Mm -hmm. So he really gave me a lot of space. And, you know, he would say when he didn't like something or, you know, he point to some device and say, hey, use that compressor, use that the other day on whatever it was, and it sounded amazing. Try that again, you know? But but just always really great general guidance and mm. really trusted me and gave me space. And that makes you want to contribute more, you know? Right. Um, yeah. You know, you, you just want to kill for the guy because you could see that he trusts you and he believes in you. So right. I think when you inspire that in people you make better art yeah that it's a lesson i've learned myself just working with artists in in the visual art medium over the years is that there's a there's a line and at at a certain point you need to kind of get out of the way of the artist and just make sure that you're capturing the spirit of the intent and it's funny we interviewed jim diamond who produced the first white stripes album and contributed production technical stuff to their second album and when we talked to Jim, it was really like, yeah, he was in capture mode kind of thing. But he also felt he needed to fill out the sound because of the two-piece situation. He had some experience yeah. with, with two-piece. But, um, you know, that was one of the things we heard is like, you know, they just he just drenched them in reverb and stuff like that to just make it feel fuller and stuff. And obviously their sound evolved quite a bit from that point. You know, that's an interesting thing that he mentions because... I had done some stuff with Jack 
for a couple of little solo pieces. And we got on fine. Everything was great. It was a fun experience. And I don't know, a few months later, he called me back and said, hey, would you like to take part in a White Stripes record? And I was like, yeah, of course. I'm yeah. I'd love to, you know? Absolutely. <laughs> so we said, okay, well, you know, I really want to stretch out on this. I really want to get wild and experiment. And I want to do this record 16 track. And I was like, 16 track, that's really daring. That's <laughs> really dangerous, Jack. And, um, you know, he was like, well, look, every every other record we did was eight track. And I, was, I had no idea. And I was blown away. And um, <laughs> I thought, okay, 16 track, this is fine, you know. And I thought about it before we got to start the record and I thought, you know, this is really going to be fun because this is going to be my opportunity to really make something that sounds classic as in a classic 70s rock album as in Glyn John's kind of production. It's really about the instruments in the room and the honesty and the the sound coming from the players. And, you know, I I can just use minimal miking and minimal processing. And I don't have to really stretch too much because it's, it's two people and I got all this space for the sounds to be huge, you know? Right. And we got in the studio on the first day of getting drum sounds. I, I took this, what I would call Glenn John's approach, which is, you know, <laughs> not many mics on the drum kit and a mic, one U67 back about a foot or so from the guitar amps and I started getting drum sounds and started listening to stuff and it sounded so wrong. I was so off the mark because I was trying to capture two instruments and this was 2007, 8, I can't remember when when that was. I just felt like wow, this is too small. You know, we're now two decades or more into listening to hip-hop, and people expect bigger-sounding records. They expect more low-end. They expect more impact. They don't want this boxy kick drum that, yeah, sounds like what a drum sounds like acoustically in the room. They want something that's got more more thump, more power, more impact. And I just said to Jack, I want to rethink this. I'm not happy with the drum sound. And I remember Jack saying, like, no, it sounds great. It sounds great. I was just like, I don't know. I don't think it does, Jack. I don't think it's the right thing to do. And he kind of looked at me odd and said, you know, I got this other 60s Ludwig kit at home. You want me to go get that? I said, no, I don't think it's the kit. I want to just try a different approach. And he was so great about it. You know, I mean, anybody else might have just went like, just just keep going. You know, just you're fine. It's fine. It's fine. Or they might have thought, boy, this guy doesn't know what he's doing. I better get somebody else in the driver's seat here. He was really trusting. And for me, out came all the compressors. It went from six microphones to 16 microphones. Wow. and um, Or what? I'm, I'm exaggerating. I have no idea. <laughs> but but, but I'm, I'm saying that the minimalist approach was gone. I was going to say... 
everything. They had one of those DBX subharmonic synthesizers at the studio there. I brought that out. I fed that in, fed the kick drum into that and would live to tape blend in some subharmonics like you would put a subwoofer on a, a kick drum these days. And so I did all that sort of modern processing and you have to realize it's to analog tape. There's no plugins, just right. Pro Tools. So I did all that processing live off the floor, whether it was two compressors on a guitar or three kick drum mics and four EQs, and it was all done live to tape. And Jack, like I say, was so patient and so trusting and just so cool about the whole thing. And, you know, it was really excited about the sound of it. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like you in the studio, just even talking with you for the few minutes that we have, it sounds like uh, you produce that kind of air of trust about you. It's not all the way the Glenn Johns approach. We've we've heard that he uh, often uh, perhaps berated some of the artists that he was working with. Glenn's definitely an opinionated yeah. guy, for sure. <laughs> but, but, but passionate, though, you sure, know? Sure. I've met him on a number of occasions. I have so much respect for him, and he's such a fan of music and musicians. You know, it's just that he tells the truth, and I think a lot of times that is an awkward position to be in in the studio. I think that a lot of artists are accustomed to being yes to death, and when you tell them you don't agree with something or you think that they can do something better, you know, usually the the whole room stops, and (laughs) it's an awkward moment, and Glenn, to my experience, was the kind of guy that's not afraid of doing that, just saying, hey, look, we got to do better here. This is, you know, this has got to stand the test of time. This isn't going to disappear. And we got to make this great. So whatever it takes. And to his credit, I I found that Jack White was the same thing. Man, when we did vocals for Icky Thump or for Consolers or anything we did together, he would always push himself. And, you know, you, you have to realize it's analog tape and it's 16 tracks so there aren't four or five tracks to do a lead vocal and comp it a lot of times it was just down to one track and punching in and Jack would say what do you think and I would say well you know I think some of it's really great Jack I think you just 
killed the verses on this, but I think maybe the choruses could be better. And he'd say, okay, just erase it all. Let's start again. I'm like, no, you want me to hold on to the verses? No, no, I can do it better. I can do it better. And wow. he constantly pushed himself like that at every turn, guitar hmm. solos or, or whatever. And, you know, when it came time for the tours, I think that was the same thing with the man. I think he kind of inspired everybody to really get the best out of themselves and, and you know, go to places that they hadn't been to. Sometimes being brutally honest is part of the job, and I don't like it when I have to do those things, but sometimes, you know, you've got to be that football coach and tell yeah. people that they suck. I don't word it that way, but, right. but you, know, you get my point. Yeah, it's tough in the age of corporate speak to hear the truth. I'm sure Jack found it refreshing. You mentioned real quick, before we go down to more Icky Thump stuff, you mentioned two solo projects with Jack. What? What were the projects? Oh, uh, no, we, uh, we did we did a track that was one of the Dylan oh. songs. You know I think that, that was I the know. first thing yeah. I did with him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was the first thing we did together. Oh, nice! Wow, that's awesome. I didn't realize you did that. That's fantastic. I, we love that song. <laughs> yeah, it's great. It's really, really great. Yeah, and Jack was just like he was like such a kid. You know, he you just I remember him saying like how great is this? I get to see my name on a record label, you know, on the actual vinyl label in parentheses next to him. That's a beautiful thing. That's so beautiful. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. Did you have to research any uh, the production of Hank Williams before? Uh, no, I mean I, I knew the tunes that I knew, and you know the, the history. Um, and you know that's an interesting question because a lot of times I do. And in fact, I'm sure that before I did White Stripes or Tours, I listened to every single White Stripes record and with my sort of technical hat on, you know. And I usually do that before I do any project. I'll listen to a, a band's past 
past work and find out, you know, what I think is good about it and what I think can be improved. And, you know, usually when I meet with an artist that I'm going to work with, uh, I'll tell them, you know, um, I listened to your past records and, and, you know, in the past, this is what I think you guys have done really well. And perhaps in the next record, you could look to uh, include background vocals or you could try to do some different grooves or whatever it is that I felt like might be the next step for them. So I'll do I'll do do the homework is my point. Hmm. So when did you first cross paths with Jack White's? Because I mean, obviously you said you've done production for him with the Hank Williams stuff. How did he get uh, your card, so to speak? Uh, I had produced the Shins album that uh, Wincing the Night Away that Ian Montone, who also manages right. Jack, yeah. uh, manages James Mercer. And uh, Ian was kind enough to um, introduce me to Jack. And Jack liked the work I did on the album and asked me to, uh, you know, try the one track out for the Hank Williams song. And that went well. And then invited me uh, to do a key thump. Oh, wow. Were you aware of the band much? I mean, obviously, you worked with the Strokes as well. And obviously, you know, you're so connected to every aspect of the music industry, it seems. I mean, we'll rattle off your credentials later. But what was your level of awareness of the sort of garage rock revival around the turn of the millennium? Were you aware of the White Stripes? Oh, oh yeah, no, no, absolutely. No, 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 no. I was a huge fan. So, you know, when he invited me to take part in it, I was really, really excited. I, didn't, I don't think I showed the excitement. <laughs> 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 I didn't want to be fanboy, but but no, no 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 I was I was definitely into the band and have always been into punk rock and uh, you know been an Iggy fan and so much of the stuff that came out of Detroit no uh, so definitely I was excited to take part in it yeah you guys recorded Icky Thump in Blackbird Studios yeah in Studio. D, I believe. Yeah, that's where we had first done the uh, Hank Williams track together. Okay. And Jack loved the room. I loved the room. The room has a beautiful tone to it. When it comes to tracking rooms, I mean, you know, you can record anywhere. You can record in your bedroom, in your closet, and achieve fine results. But there's nothing that takes the place of a great sounding acoustic space. And it doesn't have to be a, a studio. It can be a, a living room or a church or whatever it is. But Right. Mm. Or the bottom of a stairwell like John Bonham. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> it's it's got to have a character. It's got to have a comb. And D at, at Blackbird is a just beautiful sounding room. There's a foyer between a, a sound lock, if you want to call it, uh, between the control room and the, the live room that serves as a live echo chamber. And yeah. you can actually leave the door open into the tracking room and get all this reverberation that splashes back into the tracking room and ends up on your microphones. And, you know, it's, it's a unique sounding room. It really has a lot of personality. And over the years, I've done so many albums in that room, Manchester Orchestra, Brandy Carlisle, right. Morning Jacket, Corey Chisel, um, hey. Doug Seegers. Oh, man, I, I, I mean, I've probably gone down there a dozen times just because I love that room so much. And the staff at Blackbird, the whole team, they're so pro. The, the greatest gear, the most amazing microphone collection. So to get back to that room is, is always a pleasure.
Yeah, I was about to ask about the Reaver Bent Studio in particular is known for because Jack definitely has a relationship with Reverb and Echoes and, as we had mentioned before, with Jim's production. And it kind of all harkens back to Blind Willie McTell playing his guitar into a corner yes. so that the reverb will, That's right. will go That's back. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so did you or Jack come up with more <laughs> reverb tricks uh, because oh yeah no no we will for starts I mean we used the, the live chamber at Blackbird on a number of things whether it was doing a vocal inside the chamber or hand claps or guitar overdub or you know uh, put I think on some rack and tour stuff we might have put the drums like right by right in front of the reverb chamber on some of the icky thumb tracks and I'm facing out which songs but the guitar amps because they're so loud were in an isolation booth and there were some tunes that Meg really didn't want to use headphones that she really wanted to hear the guitar amp in the room so we opened the door to the ISO booth and let the guitarist bleed into the drums and the drums bleed into the guitars <laughs> and um, just the acoustic space sounds so good that you could get away with that kind of bleed and, and it was just really tuneful it, it doesn't have a build up of uh, a lot of, of ugly low mid-range frequencies that cloud the record that just has a really nice character so yeah we definitely use that stuff all the time but I'm, I'm pretty sure we did tambourines in the echo chamber <laughs> and uh yeah that always always gets used Suspect you've got a respectable side When pushed and pulled and pressured You sell on and hide But it's for someone else's benefit Not for what you want to do Until I realize that you and as you mentioned, you know, Jack had his Benson Echo Rex that we used on things and Roland Space Echoes and all that stuff came into play. And plus, the chamber itself sounds great on vocals. In fact, most, I'm going to say that either the live chamber and the EMT plates that there is in Blackbird Studio A were used on the mix of Vicky Thump because I mixed, we tracked it in Studio D and I mixed it on the Neve console in Studio A. Wow. Huh. To save the emails and the tweets, by the way, I think when I said Blind Willie McTell, I meant Robert Jackson. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, <laughs> uh, it's okay. Uh, but yeah, no, I mean, those, 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 those early blues records were always, you know, the chess stuff. There was yeah. always so much tone in those records because of the bleed of the instruments in the room. Yeah. And that's part of the sound. And certainly something that Jack always had in the back of his mind trying to, I mean, I remember him, him specifically saying like he wanted his vocal distorted, like a, a little Richard vocal. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> that's great. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. 
You got to do something to fill the two piece. You got to <laughs> make it a, a big sound. Yeah. Well, well, you know, I kind of, I didn't really fully finish my story about setting up and getting tones for Icky Thump. And that's the thing that I realized that, you know, this natural approach was just not going to fly for 2007 or 2008, whenever it was. And that I needed something that really jumped out of the speakers, that filled up all the low end. I had to work hard to get two instruments to feel like a fully produced record. Yeah. You know, everybody makes records, especially at that time. Everybody was making big layered records that, you know, the, the sounds were big and punchy. And to do this sort of au naturel 1972 thing was just not enough. So I really, really had to work hard to build up the sound and to come up with ways to take two instruments and make them fill up the space of, you know, whatever a modern pop record was at the time, in my mind. Right. Well, there is a distinct difference in the sound of that album versus the other ones, as you had mentioned. I mean, it wasn't the first time Jack and Meg had worked in a studio, obviously, or a professional studio. As we know, Elephant was recorded at Towrag in London. But most of their albums were a little homespun in that sense. I mean, you talk about Get Behind Me Satan. That was a living room record, I believe. At least, you know, a big portion of it. And same with the first Rack and Tours record. I believe that was, uh, I I believe that was made in Brendan's attic. Yeah, so... Yep. What I love about Icky Thump is it really did signal things to come in his sound. Do you remember him ever like lighting up at a at an engineering trick you did or something? Is there anything you can hear? Maybe I'm not sure if you followed his records since you worked with him, but is there anything you can hear that maybe he picked up from your time working together? Oh, I, I don't know. I mean, I think he just has always been expanding his palette and, and trying new things. And certainly, you know, when he built the home studio, uh, I'm sure that opened up his mind. And I, I remember going to the studio a couple of times when he was mid-construction and him explaining to me, you know, all the different acoustic surfaces that he was putting in the room. And I remember saying yeah. to him, gee, Jack, maybe you should just pick one or two <laughs> as opposed to six or seven different kind of acoustic spaces but it really worked out that room sounds amazing and and all the solo stuff that he's done there and dead weather and everything sounds incredible really 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 great there was a fireplace in Studio D I can remember one particular story about Icky Thump the song and the guitar solo we had done the, the basic guitars for the song and it came time to do the solo and he came in the control room and started doing the solo and was trying a bunch of things and trying his whammy pedal and a bunch of different things and he was just saying you know I'm trying to get something that sounds really sort of chopped up and spastic and and just broken and I said okay you know and we started doing stuff like while he was playing we would kind of connect and disconnect the cable from the guitar so it would (laughs) cut in and out and then i started using a noise gate to deliberately cut the sound in and out so it just sounded broken and jack was like wow that's actually pretty good that's that's kind of like almost it and he said you know it's almost like it wants to be the sound of a bad punch in you know when you punch (laughs) in on tape if you don't 
get your timing right, you might clip the attack of a note off and it'll sound very unnatural. And so I said to Jack, so I said, well, I can make bad punch-ins. <laughs> <laughs> he looked at me and went, well, yeah, but let's try it. And that's basically what I did. You know, he would play a lick and I would almost like plugged up my ears and would deliberately punch in a little too early or a little <laughs> too late. So that's why it has that awkward, chopped up kind of sound where you don't know if it's been switched on and off with a mute button on the console or it was played that way or whatever. It's just that the attack and decay of every phrase is a little bit distorted in the sense that it's been truncated. I'll just uh, hear one of his records and it'll be the coolest thing I've ever heard. And when I heard that Icky Thump for the first time, that was, I was like, wow, I think this is the coolest thing I've ever heard. Like, this is amazing. And, and well, I'll, and, I'll tell you another story about that specific song. Please. Before we started the record, Jack and Meg did some rehearsals at Jack's house. And like I said, at the time, Jack was not the master of technology. And the rehearsal tapes were these blown up cassette recordings that were so distorted that you couldn't tell a melody, you couldn't hear a voice, you just heard this big wall of distortion. Yeah. He kept telling me about this icky thumb track, how he thought it was one of the ones that he felt really good about. And one day, we had just finished oh man i don't know rag and bone or or one of the songs that was much more simple and ballad like and called for softer smaller sounds and he said okay i want to do that icky thump track and and i was sort of like i don't know what track that is you know in my mind started to play it and the, for the first moment I finally heard that guitar riff in its clarity because the only time I'd ever heard it before was this just fully overloaded cassette tape um, that I couldn't tell what the notes were what the melody was yeah. and I heard that riff for the first time and went oh my god this is a hit this is a hit record right here Drunk on the way. 
the sad thing was that all my sounds were dialed in to be these delicate, softer sounds because of the, the, the track that we had done previously. So I had to scramble like crazy to, you know, put some more mics on the drums and, you know, fire up the, the compressors and everything else and get to a place that was much more alive. And I was really struggling to get there. I felt like what I had had sonically uh, was not appropriate for the song. And he and Meg got into the song for about an hour or so. And then he finally just said, you know, I don't know. This isn't happening. I don't know what it is, but it's just not the right day for us to do this. We're not, we're not gelling on it. And I was like, oh, great. That's fantastic news. So I, I knew the next time when we finally, when he felt it was a good day to track that particular tune, I now knew going into it what I had to do with the sounds. So I, I was prepared for it, you know, and I was able to, to kind of power things up before we even got to the song. But I do have to say, like, the minute I heard that guitar riff, I was like, home run. <laughs> Did they jump around at all when they were performing? They're pretty animated on stage. Right? Absolutely. Yeah? In the studio? Yeah, no, I, I got Oh, of course. I got to say that, that their <laughs> chemistry in the studio is unbeaten. I mean, they... It really is a chemical reaction when the two of them play together. There's yeah. something about her playing that allows him all this freedom that she goes back and forth with him in terms of his time and his dynamics. And that was just really a powerful, powerful combination. I mean, and, yeah. and having recorded Jack with Patrick and Carla and uh, some other people, the White Stripes is Megan and Jack. And, yeah. um, you know, there really, really is this communication that happens between the two of them. And it's really a wonderful thing to be a part of. Amazing. Yeah, that duality that they work with, uh, that like hyping each other up. Yep. I always wondered how they went about that in the studio because a lot of times, you know, different instruments will be different tracks and, and recorded separately yep. in a lot of cases. Was Meg ever recording separate from Jack and vice versa? I mean, I, I assume Jack probably overdubbed some stuff later Yeah, on. certainly like the keyboards and, and things like that. Um, yeah, but I, I, I can't really remember. I'm pretty sure it was always the two of them together. Hmm. Uh, all the songs, I'm pretty certain, started as a two-piece. Yeah. How did a session normally begin? I guess he chunked out, like, what, th was it three weeks of time for that? I, something like that. I know whatever it was, he felt it was a long period of time. <laughs> <laughs> 16 tracks in three weeks. <laughs> That's an adventure. <laughs> did he try to utilize the time, like, morning to night with you, or did you? Yeah, I think we probably worked from, I don't know, 10 or 11 a.m. till. 10 p.m. I can't really remember. We had a pretty, pretty typical studio day. And, you know, Meg was there the whole time and really always contributing and really always a pleasure to be around. And I think almost all the tracks were the two of them together. And then Jack would go in and do an additional guitar or do a vocal or she would go in and do a vocal or uh, a tambourine or whatever it was. But, you know, they were pretty full days. Yeah. Were there ever any quirky hab? I assume, like uh, you know, working with so many artists over the years, you've gotten to know a couple quirky studio habits of 
people that you've recorded or produced. Were there any quirky habits that Jack or Meg had in the studio? Well, I don't think so. I do remember Meg, her off time, she would be knitting. Huh. Oh. You know, that, that's, I, I don't know too many people that knit in the studio, so that's maybe yeah. qualifies. But, um, Did Jack ever try and taxidermy anything live in the studio? No. Okay. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, but we did talk a lot about mid-century modern furniture and homes because I'm a geek about that <laughs> stuff as well. So we talked about his upholstering. I'm sure he was delighted. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Guitars and cars and, and all those things that you normally talk about the studio. Yeah. That's the exact hobby I was hoping Meg would have. Is It's something quiet and relaxing yeah. and uh, something an introvert would really just dive into and i think that's no meg meg was great i mean she just was so supportive and enthusiastic and so sweet and really always willing to try something uh, a second time and she really pushed herself like i say the chemistry was really unparalleled between them she's the heart of that band uh, yeah so. absolutely her drumming style was that something you had experienced before that style of drumming or was that oh like, yeah uh, Oh, yeah. Absolutely. You know, my first real professional uh, experiences as, as an engineer were with Frank Zappa. I mean, yeah. Frank kind of gave me my break as an engineer. So even though in his drummers at the time, Terry Bozio and Vinnie Colaiuta were much more technically proficient, Frank certainly came from the place of recording Captain Beefheart and, and right. uh, things that were much more primal, you know? So, yeah, I, I loved her, her approach to things. I, it brought me right back to that. guys stomping on boxes and using <laughs> using their foot while they're playing and yeah that's where it all comes from and i don't know that's a beautiful thing i mean i think meg's limitations were indeed her strengths there's no question about it yeah it's funny i never thought about beefheart in that way but i wonder if that was one of the things that did attract jack to the idea of working with meg in that sense because yeah, when you listen to Trout Mask Replica, that album sounds primal, and I had never really thought of it in that way until you just said it. Now I wonder, I bet you that was in the back of his mind, you know, as he was developing that band with me. Maybe so. I know definitely was a fan of his. Speaking of songs that are primal, we recently got to hear, thanks to the Icky Thump Vault that just came out, Monkeys Have It Easy, which was a track that was left off of the yeah. album. Are there any other unusual tracks or jamming sessions that never quite made its way on the record that you know of? Or do you have any stories about Monkey's Evidence? You know, I don't think it was called that at the time. Yeah. I don't know what it was called.
mean, we did attempt at a song more than once. Um, and I, I can't remember which song, like some songs were really easy to track, some songs were more difficult, and like I say, in the case of Icky Thump, we started it once and, and shelved it and then went back to it, and I think there were, might have been one or two others like that as well. And, hmm. you know, that's the thing with, with artists that really do have that special magic, that chemistry, you know, you have days where it all clicks and you have days where it doesn't. And you have to be respectful of that and, you know, be willing to say, oh, okay, it's not in the air today. We'll wait till it's another day. Well, a song that definitely sounds like it clicked is Rag and Bone, like you had mentioned earlier. We love that um, song. <laughs> the, the subtle... The subtle vocal performances in that, even the just the speaking roles, yep. it sounds just, it works. It works for us. Me and Paul love that one. Yeah, absolutely. That was really fun to do. I remember the two of them in the, in the studio really having a, a fun time doing the sort of shouty vocals <laughs> and all. And, uh, were there other phrases that were left off like did they did they have like a list of things they were improvising first or do you do you not know that much i honestly can't remember (laughs) (laughs) meg look at this place later you're back in the studio with jack you get the call what was that like going back into the studio with a different band i assume that was a different kind of dynamic than a stripes record with the raconteurs consolos of the lonely album yeah of course there being more people involved it was indeed a whole different dynamic the thing that i was surprised at but really blown away with was that Jack was now not a 50% partner in the production of the record, but he was a 20% partner in it, in that he really made himself a member of the band and not the sole orchestrator of everything here. Right. And I thought that was a really beautiful thing to see where he really gave everybody in the band a equal share of the production and the writing and the contributions. I don't, I'm not talking financially, I'm talking about creatively, that he gave everybody their space and respected their ideas. And Brendan is brilliant and Patrick and Jack are really special players, really unique players, just so great. To, yeah. Pat, no one sounds like Patrick. Patrick's such a unique drummer, you know? Yeah. Big, booming. Yeah, I've hired LJ to play bass on a couple of records. I did a Jeffrey <laughs> Brotherhood record. And yeah. I hired Jack to be the bass player on it, and he was phenomenal. You know, right. he was just perfect. He, <laughs> he just instantly became part of that band within the first hour of rehearsal. It, it was sort of like he just glued himself in between the guitar and drums, and it was just 
perfect. So, I mean, they're, you know, they're, they're, those are great players. They're all great musicians. And Jack was just a part of that. Uh, you know, they were all really equal and he gave everybody their space in terms of the input of ideas and the process. And, you know, and I think at times maybe that was difficult for him, but, you know, I think he knew that it was the healthiest thing to do. And, you know, and a lot of good things came out of it. How you gonna top yourself when there is nobody else? How you gonna do it by yourself? Cause I'm not gonna be here to help you. Jack's a very sort of fly-by-the-seat-of-your-pants, intuitive sort of guy that doesn't overthink anything, which is the one thing that I most enjoy about working with him because I'm the same way. I don't like to second-guess. I, I think that there is no room for the brain in music making. I think you got to kind of go by your gut and never look back. You just kind of keep moving ahead, and I think... Any kind of over-analysis is really the death of any kind of great art, at least for me personally. Uh, other people I know could do it, but I don't know. I'm somebody that likes to have a focus, zero in on something, and then just go for it. And I think Brendan's very, very different in his approach to making music. He really thinks a lot about things and experiments and tries different things before he can kind of finalize on one idea. And the interesting part about that for me is that, you know, he'll come up with several things that are really good and really unique, whereas if you sort of put the blinders on and only go down that route, you can come up with something great, but it's just that one thing, and there aren't that many other doors that open along the way. The process was indeed very, very different, and certainly took a little longer. I can't remember how long we spent on consolers, but definitely a, a lengthier process than we keep on. It's interesting you say that about Brendan's indecision, or not indecision, Brendan's options, shall we say, because... Yeah, I, I wouldn't call it indecision. We've heard interviews with him in the past, at least when he was younger. He had talked about making a decision is like the hardest thing in the world, for like commitment was so hard for him, at least for a certain portion of his life. And so it does, it rings true that there would be a lot of different things thrown around in the studio for him, whereas Jack feels like a very decisive person. Just yes, yes. boom, very you know, like, like, you know open, open up the menu at the restaurant, boom, I'll have the steak. You know, like that kind of thing, like zero in. Right, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. So, yeah. so definitely two opposite personalities in that respect. It was good in that Jack would really 
sort of back off at times and give Brendan a space. And uh, I'm not sure that was easy for either one of them, but I think there was a mutual love and respect there that they just had to let each other go down their own process of making a record. Yeah, Jack has often talked about the Tours being Jack White producing a Brendan Benson album because a large part of the band's sound comes from Brendan and his musical inclinations. Uh, you know, there's a huge pop influence that yes, absolutely. Jack's music doesn't necessarily have. Another thing I wanted to mention is you said uh, Little Jack, you hired him for a Jeff the Brotherhood thing, and he, he just blended in so well. I think that's a really understated and underappreciated thing about Little Jack is that he is a chameleon to rock and roll. Uh-huh. He can kind of work his way into any band and sound like he belongs and it's he doesn't necessarily play what everyone else is playing but what he's playing sounds like it belongs absolutely no really very very much so and then you have patrick who is perhaps the opposite in that he has such a unique style that everything almost has to work with him, you know, that I don't know where he would come up with some of the parts that he plays. Like, it's not even the specific drum fill or beat, but it's like where he played it or where he might change from one beat to another. But the placement of things in, within a song was always like, oh my God, that's brilliant. How did you think like that? Right. And, uh, you know, I think everybody always gave him his space because they were afraid to step on <laughs> any of that energy, you know, because yeah. he's just so unique of a player, the way he hears things that you really had to, to kind of give him his own uh, uh, venue to display it. drumming changed from song to song because he's such a technically proficient drummer and fills the space so well he's great at drum fills and i feel like he would be the type who would have a a very regimented way to do something unless it came to a solo i'm very curious about how he approaches recording it no i I don't think it was regimented at all in fact i i think he'd certainly come up with a feel or a beat for a song but i think from my recollection, they were very much performances, you know, that his fills were different from take to take. And no, I, I, I mean, I think he's in a, in a way like a jazz drummer or something, yeah. you know, super special. I mean, I wish more drummers were like Patrick. He's like a colorist, you know, he's more of like a, <laughs> a, a painter in ways as opposed to somebody that plays a regimented beat. The more we're talking about the tours, the more I'm sort of framing them in my mind like the Who a little bit. Like there's four. Oh, absolutely. No, no. I love him as Keith Moon in, uh, on many occasions. Right, right. I mean, my favorite track, I, we'll talk a little bit about the title track of that. 
album. I love Consoler of the Lonely. It reminded me at the time and still does a lot of what I liked about Icky Thump as a title track and a record. And it's it's interesting to me that you were involved in both of those projects. Those are maybe two of my favorite Jack songs. You know, there's a lot of abrupt starts and stops, tempo well, changes, uh, yeah, things, things like, like that. W- were you employing some similar techniques to what you had done in Icky Thump, or was there anything that you and Jack had been like, oh, yeah, we did this on this other album. What You know, maybe we could try something like that here. Like, can you tell us a little bit about the title track? You know, that's funny you say that, because my one recollection was that the process was very different between the two records. But yeah. the one or two times that we actually deliberately tried to sort of recreate something that was done in the White Stripes recording process with the Raconteurs, it just didn't work. It huh. was, it's just a different band and had to be approached differently. And, you know, uh, um, as an engineer on the record, my approach was definitely different. You know, the, the biggest difference is that there were more than two people out in the room and there was a lot of ideas floating around and you then you had Dean coming in and coming up with great keyboard ideas and sounds and the White Stripes was almost taking something and blowing it up and expanding it mm-hmm. where the Raconteurs was almost like taking this big stone and chiseling away at it <laughs> to get the pieces to be all defined. Yeah. Very different process. One distinction I can hear over it is Consolers of the Lonely has such crisp tracks. The guitar work on the Stones Will Shout in particular is one that I, you know, it's it's so crisp and clear as opposed to what Jack would probably want with the White Stripes being a little more kind of organic. You know, I think we even used different amps and different Mm -hmm. guitars. Uh, There were some guitars that were shared between albums, but I I think we used a lot of different guitar amps. I don't think Jack used his Silvertone amp at all during the process. May have used his twin, but we used some of the smaller amps that were around Blackbird, so the tones would be different, and yeah, I mean, I, I really feel you know that that record is more akin to making a My Morning Jacket record, or, or The Strokes, or, or something else as opposed to The yeah. White Stripes, you know. together fairly quickly from what we understand it was sort of an awkward period because the white stripes had just canceled their icky thump tour and do you recall any talk about a next white stripes project at that time or was the 
I, I assume maybe the the uh, the recording was obviously centered on the on the rack and tours. But was there ever any talk of like, oh yeah, we might do this next or that next or anything like that? You can recall. I don't recall anything. I mean, it really was about the band, and you know, when you go into the studio, you create this little world. You have your own way of conversing with people and you have your jokes that you tell and your routines and what you do you know it's a very funny job in the sense that you go in with a group of people and you bond with them for six weeks or three weeks or three months or whatever it might be that it takes to get the album done and you have a particular way that you work together and talk together and have lunch together and everything else and then when the record's done you all disappear and the band goes on tour you may not see each other for a year or two and then you go off as a producer and you work on another project with a different bunch of people and different personalities and different intentions and you adopt this other personality to fit in with them and make everybody feel comfortable or inspired or both. And the worlds you create from album to album are very different. So the atmosphere in a White Stripes control room would be different than that of the raconteurs, you know? It's really a funny job like that. And yeah, you, you definitely have to be a bit of a, of a chameleon and be willing to adapt to the situation. You know, sometimes it <clears throat> calls for me to be very, very quiet and have uh, less of a personality and other times it calls for me to be very much uh, enthusiastic and the cheerleader and other times when there's a lot of opinions or a lot of egos I have to maybe take more of a back seat and make sure that everybody's heard and so it's a very funny job like that Hmm. and for our audience out there if you didn't know we can rattle off some of the the people that that Mr. Ciccarelli here has worked with uh, we've got Edda James, U2, Hole, Counting Crows, Elton John, Rufus Wainwright, Bon Jovi, Alanis Morissette, Dwight Yoakam, Jeff the Brotherhood, Spoon, Morrissey, The Strokes, everywhere. You've worked everywhere. Beck, I, fe- I have to feel like Beck, when you were doing some of the work with Odelay, that probably had some similarities to Jack, because I feel like those two are are pretty uh, spiritual brothers, if you will. Uh, yeah, I would say so. I mean, I think the, the thing about Beck was that uh, he definitely is an experimenter, fearless. That's the word, I think, that I could apply to Jack and to Beck, that uh, they're both fearless musicians willing to try anything, aren't too sacred about anything. And I, I think that's something that you really, really need to do to make great art. I think you have to kind of block out the rest of the world. You can't go and copy the trend of the day or, I mean, I guess if you're trying to make a pop record and you're trying to compete with what's out there in the charts, maybe do that and hope that your record is released within the same timing of everything that you're copying. So it fits in, it's equally uh, appreciated, but I don't know. I think to really do something that's long lasting, you have just got to close the doors and make what's in your heart and hope that people love it, you know? Yeah. That would be a wonderful note to lead this interview on. I think we have one. If you have time, there's a lightning round here for like uh, quick questions, quick answers that we wanted to just touch on some of these things here that you've worked on over the years. First question I have is, 
engineering celebrity skin by Hole. I love that album. Are there any quick Courtney Love stories you could share? Ah, uh, well, you know, my experience on that record was I was just in there for a few days as an engineer okay. doing overdubs. So, you know, I don't have a big sense of it. Working with Michael Beinhorn, who's a genius and a really, really great record producer. Eric was an amazing guitar player and really, really great musical mind for the band. My experience with Courtney at the time was she just kind of came in and out of the studio. I think at the time she was doing a movie, so her time was limited, but she was always really super pleasant to be around really nice yeah. and energetic and I mean like I say it was only a matter of a few days of work but people were great awesome you remixed U2's cover of Happiness is a Warm Gun, which kicks ass. Are you a Beatle fan at all? I know you've worked with Jim Keltner, who uh, <laughs> is Beatle adjacent. Yes, indeed. Uh, yeah, of course, I grew up with the Beatles. I mean, you know, the, the Beatles kind of wrote the handbook of, of record production. And I, when I was a young 20-year-old assistant engineer, I got to work with Jeff Emmerich and George Martin as, a, as an assistant. And there was a couple of different things. They were producing Jimmy Webb when I was an assistant engineer at church. Studios, and they were also working on the Sgt. Pepper movie. Right, with the Bee Gees, which you had experience with. Right? <laughs> exactly, yeah. And, um, you know, so they were amazing to work with. I mean, George was so musical, and Jeff's sense of sounds were so perfect and beautiful. Yeah. You know, uh, it was really really great to see those guys and, and like I say I mean I think they really did write the book that we've all read from and you know that's a great sort of uh, cornerstone for pop record production and we've certainly all moved far on from that but the sense of what a pop song needs to achieve I think was written in that book and uh, I think even, you know, if you're making a hip-hop record or a heavy metal record or a, or a pop tune, I think the sense of journey and dynamic and excitement and engagement that all those Beatles records had is something that you strive for in every record that you're a part of. Yeah, amazing. Was that at Air Studios? No, this was at, uh, this was at Cherokee. I'm sure they did a lot of it at Air, but uh, I started when I moved to LA. I was 20 years old, and I, I got assistant engineering job uh, at Cherokee Studios, and I was only engineering for, I mean, assistant for maybe six or nine months. I can't remember, and then I ended up working with. Frank Zappa as his engineer. I was just fortunate in at the time, Cherokee was the, the hot studio. Uh, Roy Thomas Baker was there producing Journey and I got to work with him and like I said, George Martin and um, Genesis came in and Bob Seeger and Barbara Streisand and the Bee Gees and um, Ed James and just so many great things that I was able to sit in on and be a part of. And you know, what was amazing was being able to watch 15 different engineers and 15 different producers all work in different ways. And you really got this ability to see different approaches and styles, which is something that you don't get now if you're working all by yourself in your bedroom. You know, you can watch a bunch of YouTube videos of people making <laughs> records, but it's it's not the same because you yeah. kind of have to understand the reasoning behind people doing what they do at the moment. It's not really a hard mathematical thing. 
You know, people react and they change their technique based on what the music calls for. And, uh, you know, you have to kind of get in, inside the head of people. Uh, that's that's really really important. I think in all of this process is kind of understanding the artist, understanding the musician, and trying to help them express what they're trying to express. You know, it is very very much a collaborative process, and you know that's certainly the way I would work with Morrissey as a producer and Jack White as an engineer. Is that you're part of this experience and you're kind of there to serve and get the best out of people. Does winning a Grammy change your outlook? You've won almost a dozen of those by now. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if it changes your outlook. Uh, It's a nice moment to be appreciated by your peers. There's no question about it. I mean, it's it's definitely like, you know, a a moment in your life. It's not everything. Honestly, the best moments have been those times when the artist has come to me after the fact and said, you know, I love this record. I yeah. love the record we made together. It's exactly what I was trying to achieve. I think it sounds great. I'm really proud of it. That's what you live for. I mean, honestly, uh-huh. that's the biggest reward. You must have lorded that over someone, though. Come on now. If you're at the Sizzler and, and your steak is not done, you're like, you're like, hey, listen, <laughs> I am a Grammy Award winning producer. I've said it as a joke at times <laughs> to people. You know, that, that just they, they've asked how many. And, you know, I, I just sort of shout the number, just say 10. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> no, but I, I mean, look, it's a wonderful thing and it's really a great achievement and it's a great community to be respected by other people that you hold in esteem, but it's not everything. I mean, really, uh, truly, like having an artist pleased is the exciting thing. Uh, I mean, honestly, when somebody comes to you after you've completed the record and says, man, you know, this process was really, really long or harder than I expected it to be, but wow, I love this record. I put it on and enjoy it. You know, most most people, I don't listen to the work I've done. I just move forward. I can't sit around listening to things because all I could do is critique them. All I can do is find the flaws in them. And, and an artist says that they can actually listen to their album and be pleased with it and dance around the house singing the song. That's amazing. That's a gift. As a Bostonian, if you were to get rid of one of these two restaurants, now this is not a a music question, this is just a pure Boston question that I had to ask you, (laughs) would you get rid of Pizzeria Regina or Dunkin' Donuts? Dunkin' Donuts, definitely. (laughs) Dreadful stuff. Dreadful coffee. The worst coffee in the world. Uh, Donuts are just like lead bombs. They're just just the worst thing that you can eat. Oh, man. All right. Did Ricky Martin really live La Vida Loca? (laughs) That's funny. Um, You know, um, when I worked with him, he was the sweetest charming, most kind, 
wonderful person. Uh, again, you know, the interesting thing is that, you know, as a producer, you kind of really hunker down and you do uh, have these extended experiences with the artist. But when you're kind of building your career as an engineer, you're going day to day sometimes with different artists. So, you know, it might be three days with Hole and two days with Ricky Martin and then a few days with uh, Beck or whoever it is. You don't really get to uh, build the friendships there and all. And, and you work with a lot of different people. So it's it's a different experience. But I found him to be a great artist. But was the La Vida Loca, Joe? I must know. Was that La Vida Loca? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I, I, I can't remember. What I worked on was not that track. It was... It was uh, oh God, I've forgotten the name of the track. I'm sorry. It was a ballad. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And Mika, real quick. Oh, uh, fantastic. Yes, we did two albums together. And a really amazing singer, great piano player, wonderful person, just like super creative person, like with in-between takes, would sit there and draw and paint and do these amazing cartoon-like sketches. I adore him. Really, really, really special artist. Uh, we do too. Hey, Life in Cartoon Motion is one of my favorite albums. I, when I found out you worked on that, I was stunned, flabbergasted. I, I oh, love funny. that record. Yeah, we had a great time. Greg Wells, who um, is a producer who I've worked with on a number of things. I adore Greg. We, we just have the best time together in the studio. It's just a kind of a collaborative effort. We really, really get on well and kind of hear things in the same light. And um, my experience with him is always positive. Joe, thank you so much. This has been amazing. We could talk to you for another three or four hours, I think, just on your discography alone. But thank you seriously for joining us on the show today. And thank you for all the music. Seriously, it's Oh, man, that's amazing. kind of you. No, it's a pleasure. Absolute pleasure. It was a pleasure talking to you. And uh, yeah, everything Paul said for me as well. We've been listening to your music for years and years and years that you've produced and uh, helped bring into this world. So thank you, Joe. Uh, you're welcome. That's cool. James, that was a great interview with Joe Ciccarelli. We learned a lot. I was really happy to hear those Icky Thump and Consolers of the Lonely Stories. Very interesting to hear his take on Patrick Keeler's drumming and LJ's bass playing and Brendan Benson's production style. Just all the all the stuff I always want to hear from special features and third man vaults and things and just don't for whatever reason. So that's like the kind of insider stuff I'm always hoping for with these. And Joe just not only delivered, but just delivered in spades. So thank you very much, Joe. That was awesome. Not only that, he launched right into it. You know, we had so many other questions and we were going to talk to him about his, his own stuff, but he was like, I guess he realized we wanted to talk about Jack White stuff too. And he just launched right into it. He did. It was, uh, it was very, very generous with your time, Joe. Thank you again. And again, we would love to have you back on and talk about, George Martin and Jeff Emmerich for a while. Literally everything you've ever done because it's super great. Even if you just like list off the Grammys you've won. I had so many Enrique Iglesias questions. 
Let's get this Jack West shit out of here. <laughs> so thank you again, Joe. And thank you to our Patreon patrons, people who are supporting the show on Patreon, kicking in a few bucks to help us out. We would like to read some of those off here. We've got Michael Brookfield, and I don't think we ever gave Michael... Bone Brookfield? Bone Brookfield isn't bad. Bone Brookfield. I like it. Okay. Michael Bone Brookfield. Thank you, Michael. That's, uh, you know, write us in and, and complain about the name if you like. Well, you know, I like it. I like the name. It's fine. <laughs> we have Tam Davis, our third person in spirit every week. We have Luke Sinclair, Luke Me Over Closely, Joe Shaken, all over. We have Melinda Tay Lord, Send Me an Angel Down, Julia Hickling, the $3 hat mig. We have Stu Cat or Stu Driver, Kate McCoy, the Bones of the Operation, Brenda Englehart, I Want to Be the Boy. To warm your angle heart, we have Yvette Wilkins or Wilkins on Sunshine. The Brett 3 killed my Garski. Of course, Elizabeth Myers, which I think we had as rolling in on a burning Myers, which actually I yes. like that one, but also one eye, one blank, blank stare, stare looking, looking up, up Myers, Myers there <laughs> is also good. There's two okay. there. We yes. should take a poll. Actually, Elizabeth, and why don't you tell us which one you like? Uh, and then we have Melinda Endress, which we had two. I, I don't even know what the first one is. We are going to be Endress. Oh, okay. And then Endress and Cause. But both of those are and bad. Then, uh, no, Paul, hear me out. I did think of this one earlier. I had mentioned in that episode that I had one and forgot it, and I remembered what it was. Uh-huh. And we have all of old enough that have rhymes with dress in it. So you look pretty in that fancy dress, but I detect Melinda Endress? No. You look look... pretty in that fancy Endress. That's good. Uh, You never speak, so I have to (laughs) Endress. Why don't we do, well, that, James, this is a great discovery you've made here. It's a breakthrough. A breakthrough. (laughs) I like, I detect Melinda Endress. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes okay. i do too i like that one okay so we'll go with that does it fit the rhyme scheme i don't no. know does it have a reference yes it does there's many things check about box it. box checked so thank you does it make us feel good about ourselves no a little bit of oh. column a a little bit of column b okay. a little bit of column meany oh it's that morning energy <laughs> <laughs> it's that plague energy um it's that Big COVID energy, yeah. <laughs> so thank you to our Patreon patrons. If you'd like to kick in a few bucks to uh, help keep the lights on and uh, and to help support the show, you can do so by going to Patreon. And there's an ad at the end of the show to tell you how to do that. So thank you very much, everybody. That being said, we know it's a hard time for everybody. So um, if you can't, seriously, this will be free. Uh, yeah. You know, as long as we can make it. So As long as we can make it. Wow, that sounded more final and finite than I wanted it to. Yes, <laughs> if we make it through this thing, we'll make it free. No, um, yeah, it'll it, we'll keep it we'll keep it free for y'all. And and if you if you can kick in a few bucks, that's great. If you can't, we understand. Uh, do do what's right for you, and uh, your listenership is all we require. Anyway, if you'd like to contact us, yeah, you can hit us up on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash thirdmen. Twitter at thirdmencast. Tumblr thirdmenpodcast.tumblr.com. You go to our website, thethirdmen.wordpress.com. You can send us an email, thirdmenpodcast at gmail.com. Our show is hosted by Acast, 
which is a wonderful service which you can uh, use if you'd like to start your own podcast. Great service. We love Acast. Third Men is on YouTube. YouTube.com slash C slash The Third Men Podcast. Check us out there. James has some animations that he's done and all kinds of fun stuff. And, uh, you know, we have some interviews we've put up there and different things. So check that out. And then, of course, please rate, review, and subscribe on whatever podcatcher you're using. If it's Apple Podcasts or whatever, it's all helpful and gets some more peepers on the old show there. So thank you for doing that. And. <laughs> <laughs> So, when we read these things, there's a portion in the social listings where I always used to yawn when I was reading it, and so we used to write lawn break, yawn break in there, and then we started taking that out and replacing it with various images, like a, a rake on a lawn, and it would be lawn break, or an image of the Great Lakes, or uh, a mandrake, and now it is an image of <laughs> Nicholas Cage from the film Con Air next to an image of a cake, and I am meant to extrapolate that it is a con cake, which does in fact rhyme with yawn break. But means nothing. But it does, in fact, also mean nothing. So if you would like to post other rhymes of yawn break with images, just do that on our social channels. We'll know what it means? Oh, wait. Hold on. Oh, James has got a better one. I think he's going to delete this one and do a better one. I love that somewhere Joe Ciccarelli is going, people listen to this. I think he's already tuned out. Now, the image James has chosen is uh, <laughs> large, so it, it actually has temporarily wiped out the link list here that we've got. And so I'm just looking at a big blank page, wondering what, what surprises there. are in okay. store for me. And there is, in fact, an image James has found. James has found that image of Nicolas Cage in a in a framed picture in front in front of a cake. Is that a cake? It's a cake. Okay. It yeah. says put the bunny in the back of the box. Or put the bunny back in the box. It's a Conair cake. Yep. We would like to thank Sam Kubert and Tom Valenti for the help in the recording of our theme song, as well as Susanna Roundtree for the intros and outros of our program. And James, I think until next time. I'm going to be looking for a home in the cockpit of the Con airplane fixing Steve Buscemi's muzzle. I'm going to be looking for a home in the Columniniverse. No, that's a good, that's a good one. It's dumb. I'm going to be looking for a home in my band Sven's Fenson with my son. <laughs> Should we get a Patreon exclusive jam of the Sven's Fenson? <laughs> Experimental Shakespearean the Spence, Spence experience. Shakespearean, uh, whatever the fuck he said. What was the genre? Uh, Billy Crystal. Bye. For more information or to contact the show, visit thethirdmen.wordpress.com or email at thirdmenpodcast at gmail.com. Also visit at thirdmencast on Twitter and search the third men on Facebook. See you next time. 
Yeah, Mama's going to take you into the other room for a little while. Yeah. Yeah. I feel yeah. like I'm in a um, in a uh, kind of new wave band a la Talking Heads called Surrounded by Babies. <laughs> Mickey and Ernie? Yeah. You want to show Uncle James Mickey and Ernie? Come here. No, okay. <laughs> no, you can't see Mickey and Ernie. That's, oh, they're for Ellie's eyes only. Okay, can you hear me? Yep. Great. Yep. Oh, okay, no now, now I'm going to try to add another number here. One second, and that'll be James. Check, check, check. He's coming to us live from uh, Allentown, Pennsylvania. Allentown, Pennsylvania. Wow. Okay. Home of <laughs> home of the steel mill. Exactly. Okay. Here we go. And Jack White. That's weird. <laughs> and so we, so we just kind of, uh, you know, we didn't look any further into it. All right, all right, guys. It's Thank been you a pleasure. Much. Okay, um, I trust you'll edit it up and and. Uh, uh, make me seem uh, <laughs> <laughs> we, we endeavor to, to uh, try to do that and, and if anything it turns out we'll sound inelequent by comparison <laughs> exactly <laughs> alright All right, okay. good luck with it say hi to everybody bye 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 speaking of which Colomini's in that as a con yeah he is one of the cons so, in the con era. So there's there's the connection. I mean, I mentioned him earlier. There's another connection. Eh, it's something. Uh, where is it? Column or column? I thought it was column. Like a like Might a be. like a like a Greek like Greek architecture. I thought it was Colm. Uh, I thought it was Colm. It might be Colm. Colm, Mimi. Wait, hold on. How do you pronounce it? At the Irish O? Everyone on that show has a ridiculous name. Colm. Nana Visitor is Colm. silly. 
Rene Abagenois. It took me years to figure out how to pronounce that. <laughs> I think it's called. Check, 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 it's not Henry Bones, Jefferson McCoy, <laughs> Dr. Leonard McCoy himself. Uh, yes. Uh... <laughs> I got some big baby energy, Paul. <laughs> I go back to our song. Hey everybody, Paul here with a quick message for you. As James and I mentioned many times on the show, this podcast is 100% not-for-profit and a labor of our love for music. We pride ourselves in bringing you interesting, timely content as we have these past 100-plus episodes. Podcasting is, however, a weirdly expensive process, and we actually lose money on hosting, time, equipment, advertising, and all the other little things that we need to do to make these shows for you. So, to help break even on some expenses like those, James and I have set up a Patreon account where you can, if you like chip in a few bucks to help keep the lights on it can be as much or as little as you can swing and all donations are greatly appreciated the last thing we want to do is hound anybody for cash so just know that listening to our show is always payment enough but if you would like to help us out that would be amazing all right it's all from me remember you can head to patreon.com slash third men podcast and a huge thank you to everyone who's donated already all right everybody i'll see you on the show and i'm wayne kaminsky You are all invited to join us on a magical mystery trip through the lives of the Beatles every week on the Yesterday and Today podcast. This show details the chronological journey of the world's most famous band using music, interviews, and rarities collected since the debut of John, Paul, George, and Ringo onto the world stage. We're a fan-made production and we're available now on iTunes and wherever you find your podcasts. So sit back, relax, and download the stream. We hope you will enjoy the show. Uh, Hang hang on one second. Sorry. Okay. (laughs) I think I'm also going to... I'm gonna be getting some uh, some ambient baby noises on my end too. Ah, uh, there you go. Yeah. So I think we'll yeah. uh, we'll be wrapping it up soon in a second. But uh, 